welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, guided by the lectionary, that three-year cycle of Bible readings that we employ uh, to keep us in most of the Bible most of the time as we go through the scriptures here at Christ Church on a three-year cycle, uh, guided by that lectionary, we are right in the middle of a seven-week sermon series from the New Testament letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And you will remember that 1 and 2 Timothy are letters from the Apostle Paul to a young presbyter, a young priest, he has left in charge of the church that is in the city of Ephesus. Paul is, is offering two general sets of instructions uh, to Timothy. First of all, how he is to order his personal life. Timothy, here's how you are to order your personal life as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor. And secondly, here's how to order the life of the Christian community that is under your care. Here's how to order your personal life. Here's how to order the life of the church. And frequently, as in the text from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we heard today, those two areas of concern actually overlap. They, they blend in with each other. But this is also a letter that has a deep emotional context. 2 Timothy is a letter with a deep emotional context. It is, in one sense, Paul's last will and testament. Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome. He is awaiting execution. And so later in this letter, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is Paul's last will and testament. This letter is a poignant outpouring of affection for Timothy coupled with a deep concern for the future, Paul's deep concern for the future. And the most pressing concern in Paul in Paul's last days is that Timothy would boldly profess the Christian faith and safeguard the ministry that has been entrusted to him and also that that same Christian faith would be passed on uncorrupted to the next generation of believers. And so Paul begins his admonition to Timothy, and we're actually going to kind of go verse by verse through this this letter, this text we heard this morning. Paul begins his admonition to Timothy in in this passage of uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. He says, "...to fan into flame, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands." So given the context of what follows, this is specifically a reference to Timothy's own ordination, Paul's ordination of Timothy, and spiritual gifts that were poured out on Paul, I mean on on Timothy through that ordination. But here's the takeaway for us from verse 6. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to fan into flame the gift of God given to him, and I think based on what, uh, what follows, Paul is concerned concerned that Timothy's courage and boldness and in confessing Jesus before a hostile world, that courage and that boldness has begun to flag. He urges Timothy to stir up the fire of God's Spirit in his life. 
You know, our relationship with Jesus, listen, folks, our relationship with Jesus has to be tended just like we tend a fire. And, you know, years ago when Lisa and I were first married, we had a wood stove. And there's just something very nostalgic still about that wood stove. But you know what the wood stove doesn't do? It doesn't keep burning by itself. You have to go and you have to stir it and you have to put more wood in it. And after a while, you have to take, take the ashes out and put the ashes somewhere where they don't burn up anything. And you have to tend the fire. It has to be stirred up and it has to have more fuel added. This is what that means for all of us. As baptized, born-again followers of Jesus, we are all recipients of God's supernatural gifts. God, has, God sovereignly acts to bless us with the gift, first of all, of the new birth. That's a miracle that we, we become new creatures, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So he's given us the gift of the new birth. And then he's given us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and to empower us for holy living. Empower us for holy living. But listen, the Bible, as indicated here, reveals that it is the believer's responsibility. You, Timothy, stir up the fire. You, Timothy, fan into flame to stir up the fire of grace in our lives. Uh, Tom Oden has written, spiritual gifts may become atrophied due to abuse or non-use. They await our cooperative energies. You're sounding a little, little Eastern Orthodox there, Tom Oden, which is not unusual since he was a patristic scholar. He requires our cooperative energies to be reawakened as gifts of grace. Though not harshly withdrawn by God, spiritual gifts do require our daily cooperation with grace to become effective on a daily basis. Lacking exercise, they are prone to decay. So how are we, how are we to fan into, into flame the gifts that God has given us? This gift of the new, the new, the new birth, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the other spiritual gifts that God has brought into our lives for, for ministry and holy living. Well, listen, if you are not regularly attending worship on the Lord's Day, if you are not regularly receiving the sacrament, if you are not regularly fasting and praying, if you are not regularly reading the Bible and gathering with other believers for fellowship, then you are neglecting the means of grace. And the fire of faith will turn into a smoldering ember in your life. So we need these means of grace. Worship on the Lord's Day, the sacrament, prayer and fasting, scripture reading and study, fellowship with believers. Those things fan into flame the gift that is within us. So then Paul reminds Timothy this. He says, listen, and I want us all to hear this. Cowardice is not a spiritual gift. Cowardness, cowardice is not a spiritual gift. 2 Timothy 7, uh, chapter 1, 7 and 8. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. God gave us a spirit, not of fear. The word there probably is better translated timidity. Or, yeah, timid, timidity, timidity, timidity. I'm sorry, it's English. You know how I struggle with that language. <laughs> Don't give, it has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Therefore, he's given not a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul seems to be concerned, as I said, that Timothy might have begun to suffer a courage deficit as it related to boldly confessing Christ in the face of adversity. Paul is in prison. Paul is facing execution for his Christian witness, and perhaps Timothy begins to fear for his own safety. That seems logical. The same call to courage is especially, however, important for us as believers today, here in the Christian West even. In the last decade, boldly confessing Jesus in the Western countries, you know, Western Europe and North America and Australia and New Zealand, Boldly confessing Jesus in the Western cultures where once this was not an issue, uh, particularly confessing Christ when it is demanded of us that we agree with the sexual revolution and surrender also our biblical convictions on the sanctity of life. When we run into that kind of conflict, it means that we are increasingly facing the opprobrium, in other words, the shaming of the mainstream culture. Not only is there public shaming and vilification of believers, believers have begun to lose their livelihoods, to be fined, and to be threatened with prison time for failure to surrender Christian convictions. Well, how can these things be? That can't be true. Well, just earlier this month, Christian Concern, which is a United Kingdom um, organization that is concerned with Christian persecution and, and, um, and religious liberty, Christian Concern in the UK reported that a British physician was fired after 30 years of service because he refused to call a six-foot-tall bearded man a woman. Now, we're not having a conversation about transgenderism this morning. We've actually had a conversation about that. I've preached about that, and I think we've done it in a loving and um, thoughtful way. And, And if you want the Uh, the notes from that sermon, I can provide those or even give you a link to the audio. But this is what I want us to notice from this story, not the whole transgender uh, aspect. Listen, the physician argued that the sciences of genetics and biology and the responsible practice of medicine prevented him from complying with the demand that he call this, uh, this, this man a woman. He also, however, stated that as a Christian, he believed that the Bible, he believed that the Bible was God's word. And when it says in Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. He believed that to be true. But a British tribunal this month upheld his sacking, his firing. And in the judgment against him, I want you to listen to this. This is what's where, where the critical point is. The judgment against him, in the judgment, their judgment, it says this. Belief in Genesis 127, lack of belief in transgenderism, and conscientious objection to transgenderism, in our judgment, now listen to these words, are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others. Did you hear that? Genesis, the Bible in the estimation of a British law court, conflicts with human dignity. Now, the irony is that belief that God made us in His image, which is what is stated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, is actually the foundation of the Western belief 
and the dignity of all human beings. That's where that belief comes from. But now in the United Kingdom, belief in the Bible is overtly stated to be incompatible with human dignity. But this Christian brother, this doctor, showed that God had not given him a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-discipline, of self-control, as he boldly confessed his Christian faith, even in the face of adversity. And more and more of us are going to be called to that moment. Are you prepared for that? Now, please note that the word translated here as self-control or sound mind or self-discipline literally means the ability to control oneself in the face of panic or passion. Don't panic. In relation to sharing the testimony of Jesus, it means the ability to stand firm in our witness and to press forward in sharing our testimony even in the face of fear or intimidation. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Now here's the point. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. No matter what everyone else is saying, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Public shaming for not going along with the latest cultural orthodoxy is rampant now. There's virtually an industry that specializes in attacking anyone who bucks the spirit of the age, especially Christians. But we are called not to knuckle under to this pressure. As one Christian provocateur has said, telling the truth of the gospel is an act of love even when it is not appreciated. He writes, refusal to tell the truth, refusal to tell the truth, unvarnished, ungarbled, unfettered, unashamed, is either malice or cowardice. If you know a man to be utterly deceived and in a way that is lethal to his soul and you choose to say nothing because he will react violently to it, you either despise him or you love your own peace and safety more than you love him. Power and love and of a sound mind. And be encouraged, brothers and sisters, the the love and power given to us by the Spirit prepare us to endure hardship on account of the gospel. That's what Paul says here in this same verse. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of the Spirit. That's how we do it. There's good news. God's power rests on us in our weakness when we suffer for the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, 4.14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, listen to what the Bible says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, glory and of God rests upon you. It's like, you want to know what that image is from? I think it's from the image of the Shekinah glory of God resting on the tabernacle in the wilderness, coming to overshadow the mercy seat that God's presence is right there with us. The spirit of glory and of God. Be encouraged. Take heart. We know that even in our weakness, in a matter of, as a matter of fact, we sense God's power the greatest. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, and listen, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I don't even know what a calamity is, actually. What falls under the category of calamity? I'm not really sure. It's pretty bad, though. But Paul says he's content with that, for he says this, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He begins to unfold the content of the gospel that can invite this kind of suffering. To begin with, that gospel is that God saves us. This is critical. I hope, I hope you hear this. God saves and calls us not because we earned salvation by our works. God does not save us. He does not call us because we have earned salvation by our works. But because of, listen to these words, I mean every one of them, of his sovereign, elective purpose and by grace. We are saved by God's elective purpose and by grace. In other words, his unmerited love and goodwill to every one of us. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, listen, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Well, Ben, that sounds exactly what you just told us, like what you just told us. That's right. I repeat myself. I'm in the department of redundancy. That's where I belong. That's one of the reasons, by the way, this seeking love of God, this active pursuit of us, the fact that we don't earn our salvation, that's one of the reasons that the icon of Jesus, the good shepherd, stares you in the face every Sunday morning at Christ Church. It reminds us that we did not go looking for the shepherd. We didn't go looking for God. It reminds us rather that Jesus, the good shepherd, came looking for us. It was whose purpose was it to come looking for us? His purpose. It was his purpose and his grace that saved us. And that is indeed gospel good news. But then Paul messes with how we like to tell the gospel. We like to talk about, you know, Jesus saved me. He saved me from my sins, which of course he does. Thanks be to God. But sin is just the road. It's just the trail to the ultimate destination of our desperate situation, which ends in what Paul doesn't say sin. He says death. Death is the actual problem. Second Timothy chapter one, verse 10. Christ Jesus abolished. This is his gospel now. You ready? He abolished death and brought life and immortality, immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolishes death, and when we are united to him by faith and baptism, he grants us a share in that victory. So that you, my dear friend, if you are in Christ, are a fellow conqueror of death. That's the biggest enemy you'll ever face. And once you've conquered death, everything else is easy. Easy. Calling me names? <laughs> Don't bother me a bit. We conquered death. Death isn't even a problem for us. And finally, this gospel has to be guarded, Paul says, as a deposit. Verse 13, follow the pattern of, my sound, of the sound words you have heard from me, the apostolic tradition, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then listen to what he says. By the Holy Spirit. All right, how are we going to do this? 
by the Holy Spirit. Do we do it in our own strength? No. Are we pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps? No. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. You know, we do not get to change any deposit that is given to us. We have bankers in this church, and they will tell you that if you place an item in your safe deposit box, your deposit box, you expect for the bank to give it back you to, to you the same as you put it in there, unchanged. No substitutions allowed. You would be right upset if they did that. Likewise, in the same exact way, we are not permitted to alter or to make more socially palatable substitutions for the gospel and the truth laid down for us in God's Word. Now, you have to have your obligatory old dead Christian guy quote, so here it comes. St. Vincent of Lorraine, writing around the year 340 A.D., says this. He speaks to this exact verse. What is meant by the deposit? That which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. We are very innovative and inventing people. Americans, we really do have, that's one of our gifts as a people. We are innovative. We love to invent stuff. I mean, people just, you know, uh, you know, go to sleep and wake up with a new patent. You know, that's how we do here in this country. But this, so this is a little counter to what we expect in life. So listen to that again. What is the deposit? That which is committed to you, not that which was invented by you. That which you have received not that which you have devised, a thing not of wit, but of learning, not of private assumption, but of public tradition, a thing brought to you, not brought forth of you, wherein you must not be an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit." So here's what that means for us. We are to be creative people, creative in how we present the good deposit, creative in how we share the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, creative in how we express our worship. We're just, we just don't get to be creative about the content of the gospel. It has to remain the same. The gospel deposit is unchanging because it is about God, and God does not change. And that is good news, more good news, because if God does not change, that means that, that His eternally stated love for you and for me does not change either. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord your God, do not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, again, that's good news. His love never changes for us. The gospel doesn't change for us. You only have to guard, however, something that is threatened. We are always tempted to surrender or to modify the gospel. We're tempted by, the, by persecution or, how about this, people-pleasing or by our own sinful passions. That's right, you got some preacher alliteration. Persecution, people-pleasing, and passions. They're always pressuring us 
to surrender the truth of God's Word, the core content of the Christian faith. And that's why in that tiny little letter of Jude, right there before we get almost to the end of the New Testament, Jude writes this, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you, Christians, to what? To contend, to epagonesthemi. In other words, to battle as if in the arena. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. Battle for the truth with Christ's sacrifice as your model for how you wage warfare. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You know, this contending for the truth of the gospel, the unchanging gospel, sometimes makes me feel like I'm always preaching Christ down to no, uh, Christ's church down to nothing. Preaching them down to nothing. Because of my retrograde commitment to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, it's it's always it's kind of just, it makes me sad. I'm just to be very honest. It's sad and discouraging when we have people that we we welcome with love, and this is such a loving congregation. But then I, I proclaim the scriptures and I can't change the scriptures. And and they just they just go away saying, nah, that is not up to date enough for me. That is not what I wanted to hear. I wanted a, a more socially acceptable Jesus. Well, that's not really a socially, it may be a socially acceptable Jesus, but that's not the gospel. And it doesn't have the power to save. And if we really love people, we will not attenuate God's word, his truth, and the content of the gospel. Now, I want to remind us, though, that guarding the faith and standing courageously for the good news about Jesus does not happen on Facebook, and I'm going to hurt your feelings, or Instagram, or Twitter, or any other social media platform. Um, actually, later in this book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, this is why I'm saying that. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. And that's really what goes on most of the time in those kind of conversations. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. So permit me a little, uh, a little hyperbole here. If you are a jackass on social media and someone lashes out at you because of that, you're not being persecuted as a Christian. You're just being foolish <laughs> and reaping the reward. Use social media for cat pictures <laughs> and pictures of your food. <laughs> not fruitless quarreling with unbelievers. No, you see, brothers and sisters, genuinely, courageously defending the deposit, the gospel, happens actually in spirit-filled, love-filled, moment-by-moment encounters with real people that you see face-to-face, people that Jesus loved and people that Jesus died for. That's where you'll defend the faith. I was reading a a devotional this week. None of us, it says, none of us is seeking to live in conflict with the people around us, and so we are always tempted to make the gospel inoffensive in order that we might 
uh, preserve the peace. But the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greek, to the Gentiles. And so the elect of God show their faith by trusting a message that runs contrary to the lies of our culture. If what is called the gospel, not the messenger, if what is called the gospel, not the messenger, never offends, if the gospel never offends, it is not the true gospel. Guard the deposit given to you. Be strong and courageous. God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but of love and of power and of self-control. We're not saved by any works that we have done, but by His sovereign purpose and by grace. He saved us not just from our sins, praise God for that, but from the very power of death itself. And because of the content of that gospel, we don't need to fear anything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 